Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're talking about prevailing prayer, and we are main scriptures back in over in James chapter 5 where it talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. And we started out with the question is, is are our prayers accomplishing much? And they're really getting answered. We've gone through and looked at scriptures where God's made all kinds of promises to us, which we'll probably look at again, where he's come, told us to come and ask him. Well, he's not done that to frustrate us. He's not called us to come over and over again and ask of him things just to say, well, I don't know whether I'm going to do it or not. But he's called us to come and ask because he wants to answer. The last time we talked about this, which was three weeks ago because we've had speakers in between, the last time we talked about us, I really felt led to go back and take a step back instead of going through some of the rest of these principles of prayer and just begin to look at the question of, well, if, if we're to pray for things that God already wants and God can do anything, the next logical question is, why does he need me to pray? I mean, if God's sovereign and can, God can do anything he wants... And we can only pray for things that are within the will of God, so the things God already wants to do, then what's He need me for? I mean, He's God, right? I mean, have you ever, ever, anybody ever had that question? You know, it's a legitimate question. In fact, you really need to raise it because somewhere it's underneath in there. Why does God need me to pray? And so, and it's not just as why does God need people to pray? Why does He need me to pray? Because what we'll learn at some point is that there are situations that God will bring across your path that you're assigned to pray for. There are people that God will bring to your heart, to your mind, that He wants you to pray for. He may have others praying for them, but He wants you to pray for. There may be people that the Spirit of God calls you to pray for. You don't even know who they are, and you may never know till you get to heaven. I'm sure there were people praying for me. I know my family wasn't saved, so it wasn't, my family wasn't praying for me. So it had to be somebody else that I didn't know. And eventually, as, as the progression went on of God drawing me closer and closer to Him, we met some people who began to pray for us, but we never would have come to that place if somebody hadn't been praying for us already. And I don't know who they are yet, but boy, when I get to heaven, am I going to thank them? My point is this. Why does God need me to pray? Why is that important? And I'm not going to go back over it. You can go and look at the notes. We posted them online from three weeks ago along with the chart that we ended up with. But what we saw basically was this. When God created the earth, he put man here, Adam, Adam, and he put him in charge. And when he gave him the responsibility to manage this and to oversee it and to take care of it, to be fruitful and multiply, he also gave him authority over it. And then and the evidence of that authority is... Adam named everything that was created. God didn't name it. Adam named it. And then God honored what Adam named, which was a sign that God was recognizing that authority that he had given to him. And this is what sometimes people have to understand. Once God's delegated that authority, he's not going to take it back. We might if somebody went and messed up what we did, but God does not take it back once he gives it. Romans 11 says the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. God does not change his mind. And so God gave that authority to Adam, and in chapter 3 we saw that Satan comes in, Lucifer comes in, and he deceives the woman, and he gets the man to disobey, and when the man disobeys, he transfers that authority over to Satan who now becomes the God of this world. And I took you through several scriptures that showed you that he was the God of this world. And we looked at the temptation that Jesus went through. And I think it's Luke chapter 4, where Satan tempted him. And one of the ways he tempted him was by giving him this authority that Jesus came to, to buy back. Because what God does is he sends, this, he sends his son as the second Adam to be obedient where the first Adam was disobedient, to establish a new line of authority for a new race of man on the face of this earth. And so Satan comes to not to, to cut that off at the pass by tempting Jesus to give him the authority that he came to win back, to therefore, without going to the cross, because Jesus was perfectly obedient to his Father, he did not fall into that trap. That's a message right there that the greatest protection from being deceived is obedience. The greatest protection from being deceived and being deceived by Satan is obedience to the Word of God and to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, you'll find obedience is the place of blessing. Obedience is the place of protection. Obedience is the place of being able to for guidance. Of everything that comes from God, it all culminates ultimately in simple, simple obedience. But that's something we talked about several Sunday mornings ago. And so we looked at that, and so Jesus came to bring, win back, to establish a new line of authority, and then, which he did by being perfectly obedient. Huh. And then what happens is once he is obedient to go to the cross, he's obedient to be buried, obedient to be raised from the dead, he's now sealed that next other line of authority. And we had a chart up there that showed you. And then what happens is once you come to Christ, you change kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 says we've been transferred, out of, delivered out of the dominion, the domain, the authority of darkness, Satan's domain, Satan's line of authority, and transferred over to the kingdom or the domain or the line of authority of, his beloved, of, of, of the beloved son. So when you came to Christ, you were taken out of the kingdom of this world and you were transferred into the kingdom of God, which is here on the earth through the church, and you were joined to Christ. So now the authority that he exercised, that he won, is now in his church. That's why he says in, 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 in Matthew 28, 18, you go there, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, you therefore go and make disciples of all men. So, and then he gave the church his name. And so we went through all of that, and we saw, so therefore, that all amounts to this. God does not have authority in this earth to move unless somebody that's a man gives him that authority. Now, there have been exceptions where God just, but it may have been even then somebody was praying. So just as God needed Adam's permission, he needed to go by what Adam had named things, now that the church has been given that authority that Jesus earned, God cannot move in this earth unless one of us authorizes him to. Think about that. There are souls tonight that God's heart is breaking for, that desperately wants to reach out and move in their life. And God wants to move, but he needs someone to authorize him act. And that's what you and I are called to do. This is why prayer is critical to the church. But without understanding that, we kind of figure, you know, we may not think it through logically, but somewhere in the back of our mind, we well, God can do what he wants to do. I mean, what does he need me for? So I'll just, you know, cook along and do what I'm doing for God. And, you know, but my prayers really aren't that important. They're critical because God cannot move unless one of us, and preferably many of us, authorize him to move in that situation. So that's what we covered last time. We're going to do now step also back and look at something because I've become sensitive aware, because there's so much we could talk about prayer, become aware um, about that, that it's very easy as we go through the principles that we're going to look at to get confused. In fact, I suspect that most Christians are confused about prayer. And that's in part why our prayers are not getting answered. Because what we're going to discover tonight, that there are different types of prayer. And they operate by different principles. And so if you're operating, if you think you're operating in one type of prayer, and you're using the principles of another type of prayer, it's not surprising it's not going to work. And as we've talked looked at before, these are principles. They're not rules. It's not like God has a checklist and say, look, there's 10 requirements before I have to answer a prayer, and you've only done nine of them. Whew, I'm glad you didn't do the 10th, or I'd have to do something here. And, and, but, but, you know, it's like we're earning something by how we pray, or, and it's not that at all. They're just certain principles because we've looked at the fact that what prayer really is is getting something that exists in the spirit realm to work in this natural realm. And in order to do that, God, it requires that somebody that's, that's operating in this realm has a connection with that realm. And that's what we looked at faith does. And I'm not going to go back over all that. So you, you give you time to find Ephesians chapter 6. All right, let me give you a little background here. I think it's important to understand what this scripture is about. This is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul 
to the church at Ephesus. And when it's a church at Ephesus, it's not necessarily, don't think of it as in a building like this. It was a series of like house churches. And these letters were to be circulated around, and in some cases, they would go from one community to another community. In fact, you'll see, I think it's in Colossians, where it talks about, read the other letter that I sent, which was probably referring to this letter, because these are like sister letters. They're very similar to each other. Colossians and, and, and Ephesians are very similar to each other in pattern and in content. Um, and so, the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, goes into the city of Ephesus, which was a Roman, was a Roman city, as the head of a Roman colony. He goes in there and he founds this church, and he spends about two years there building the church up, making sure that there were leaders established, and then he, then he moves on and ends up eventually over into Greece, into, 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 the, into Philippi, and then down eventually into Corinth, and down into uh, Athens. Um, on his third missionary journey, he comes back through this area, and you'll see this account in Acts chapter 20. He visits, he actually doesn't go to Ephesus, he's at, I think it's Miletus, he's in the coastline, but he calls for the elders of Ephesus, now this is a number of years later, to come out and to, to, he wanted to encourage them and he wanted to, to, to say some things to them. And, when, and then you'll find that in Acts chapter 20, and he says a farewell to them. They kneel on the shore, and they pray together, and they cry together because they realize they're not going to see him on this earth again. And, and, um, but one of the things he says to them is, is, you need to be aware because when I leave you, there are going to be ravenous wolves come in. Now, there are two types of wolves that can come into a church. There are four-legged types, and there are two-legged types. The two-legged are the most dangerous the four-legged, you can tell because they're snarling and they got fur on them, you know, and you just instinctively realize we better close the door and not let them in the door. But the two-legged kinds are a little more hard to discern. And what was about to happen, and Paul knew this, is there were going to be people coming in bringing Judaizers. He says, I think there are going to be wolves come in, and he thinks he says there are going to be goats coming in. He's, what, are, what he's talking about is there are, going to be, there are going to be people coming in from the outside with false doctrine trying to lead you astray, but he's also implying there are going to be some that rise up from within the church that are going to try to lead you astray. So he's warning them. I said that all as background because we're going to start in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, now everything up until this point, he begins when we talked a little bit about this on Sunday as we spent a lot of time just walking through chapter 1 and the incredible promises that are in chapter 1 and then chapter 2 talks a lot about God's grace and God's provision and how God's grace includes the Gentiles and chapter 3 goes into that a little bit more. Chapter 4 then begins to talk about our responsibility and he talks about the, the ministry gifts that have been given to the church and he ends up in verse uh, about verse uh, uh, Chapter four, talking about the uh, verse, excuse me, seventeen, talking about the unity of the church, and then talking about our responsibilities, how we're supposed to to get along with one another, and then over in chapter five, he talks about imitating his love, and then he talks about by side reference about marriage. In chapter six, he talks about children and how they're to be obedient. So he's talking about relationships within the church, and then suddenly in verse ten, he changes subjects. It seems. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the tricks or the devices of the devil, the evil one. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And we're going to come back and talk about that a little later on, not tonight, but in this study. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. He's not talking about how we get along with one another anymore. He's not talking about spiritual gifts anymore. He's not talking about walking in love anymore. He's talking about spiritual warfare. He's saying you're in a battle. And you need to realize that in this battle, you have to be careful to make sure you're properly armed and, and most of this armor is defensive armor so that you don't get deceived, you don't get pulled off course. Why was he sharing this with him? Because he knew by the Spirit that there were going to be coming into that church spiritual forces to try to destroy them and pull them off track. And he's trying to prepare them to how to stand against this 
with spiritual wherefore. Notice he doesn't say form committees and get legislation passed to, to keep them out of the church. The church has become too political. And I'm not saying it's wrong sometimes to stand up for principles. I'm not talking about that. But we've become too folk. We're fighting the battle on the wrong fronts. And if we get out from underneath where we're called to fight it, we're out from underneath our anointing and our grace, and we're fighting with the weapons of the world. And the problem is when we're doing that, we're not being a witness of who Christ is to the world. We're being a witness of another political point of view and not representing what we're called here to represent. Isn't it interesting? With all the political issues Jesus had in his day, he didn't say much about them, did he? He preached the gospel. And that's what the church is called to do above everything else. It doesn't mean we can't speak out or shouldn't speak out at times. But our primary responsibility is to declare the gospel. Because you can be right politically, you can be right on social issues, and have everybody around you going to hell. And we failed. We failed at what we're called to do. All right. So he's talking about spiritual warfare. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore, now he's going to talk about the armor. Now, a number of years ago, I did a series on the armor of God and those are available through the bookstore if you really want to learn some more things about this. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on your feet, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now I think you can understand what some of those fiery darts are. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is, by the way, the only offensive weapon we're given here, which is the Word of God. And we talked about that when we studied that. But look at that. That was all a prelude to how do you exercise that spiritual warfare. He's told us how to dress for it. He's told us the, the weapons to pick up. But now that we got the armor on, the helmet straight, we got the belt straight hanging around our waist, we got the sword you know, on our, in, its, in its sheath, we got the shield of faith, we've got our feet in the right shoes, and we're all set to go, how do we fight this? And this is where most, many Christians fail. We then, having done all this, fight with our flesh, fight with man's weapons, fight with our reasoning, fight with our mouth, fight with our hands, fight with our deeds. But this is all part of the same idea. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that the utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel. Paul wrote this while he was in jail. So the apostle Paul, it's encouraging to me, he wasn't just bold in his personality. What he's saying, I want, I need you to pray for me so that under the pressure that I'm under, I'm not going to back down, but I'm going to be bold in what I speak for the Lord. And he needs them to pray for that. For which I am an ambassador in change, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak again. And then he goes on and says some things. Now let's go back to verse 18 is what we want to look at tonight. And, and different translations reflect this a little bit. But in the Greek, what it basically says is, through the agency of all prayer and supplication... At this particular time, be watchful and alert in the Spirit. What I want to focus on in the beginning is the New King James says, praying always. But other translations say, which is more closely to the literal Greek, through the agency of all prayer and supplication. What I want to focus on tonight and it may spill over into next week, is all prayer. What's that mean? All prayer. Well, the Greek word all there is the Greek word pons, P-A-N-S, which means everything that's included. So this means the totality of prayer. One aspect of that, and you'll see this in some translations, especially like the, the Amplified, it will say all manner or type or, 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 or methods of prayer. I think world translation says all methods of prayer. And they're right. 
So what this implies is that there are more than one type of prayer. That's important to know. Because if we're just going to have a prayer meeting, what's its purpose? Are we just going to all get together and start praying in the Spirit? Are we all just going to get together and start praying our own thing? Or is there a focus and a purpose for the prayer? Because as we're going to learn, and we'll just touch on it tonight, is that these different types of prayer, which have different purposes, have different principles by which they operate. And that's important to know. That's important to know. I have in my basement a set of wrenches. Not that I know how to use them a lot, but I have a set of wrenches because I'm male and I want to have tools around. I won't get into this tonight, but I've gotten in trouble with tools before, which is why I have multiple tools now because I used to have one tool, which was a vice grip wrench, and I thought I could fix anything with that. And one, one day I decided to try to fix a dripping faucet, and I made a plumber in our neighborhood wealthy. Because by the time I was finished, I had that pipe in an oval shape instead of a round shape. And he had to open the wall up, take the sink out, all because I used the wrong tool and was too proud to realize, admit that I couldn't do everything, all things with the vice grips who helped me. <laughs> so if you're going to work on a project, just because you've got tools, you need to know what what the project is because it's one thing to work with wood with tools. It's another thing to work with metal with tools. It's another thing to work with plumbing with tools. You've got to have the right tools and you've got to know how they operate in order to not be dangerous to yourself and get in trouble with your wife, which I was. That was a long time ago and that's past. But, and I've learned, I've learned, hopefully, learned that lesson. I get tempted sometimes, but I hopefully learned that lesson. So that set of wrenches is well hidden down in my basement. It's important to know. It's important to know. Let's, um, so there are different types of prayer, and each has its own purpose, and each has its own principle. So when we just say, well, we're just going to pray, we need to know what type of prayer is appropriate for the purpose, because they're going to operate under different principles. If prayer has great power, if prayer has great power, we need to understand what kind of prayer we're operating in because we may be misusing that power. Well, let's talk a little bit about what some of these types of prayer are because the main reason I'm going through them is not so we'll learn a lot about them because there's one particular type of prayer that this series is about and I want you to know what we're not talking about before we get into what we are talking about. Because we started to touch on some of these and even touch on some of the principles of some of these, and that's what I realized we need to step back and look at it. Turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22. Very well-known scene. Jesus has come to the end of his public ministry. He has had his last meeting with his staff, with his disciples. He's converted the Passover meal into a meal of communion, which is called the Last Supper or the Lord's Table. And he's gone out into the garden and he's brought with him three of his closest members of his team, Peter, James, and John. And he's told them to wait and to pray so that they would not fall into temptation. And then he goes into the garden did I say 22? Okay. He goes into the garden to pray. Verse 52. And Jesus said to the chief priests, um, excuse me, no, I'm in the wrong place. Wait a minute. I'm looking at the wrong... For, for 42. He told his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to pray. Verse 40 says, He came to the place and said to them, Pray that you may not enter in temptation. That's the message right there. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
his prayer here ends with, this is what I'm asking you, but be it done according to your will. Your will be done. And here's a great example of this. Because what we've taken that is we've added that at the end of many prayers. Lord, this is what I'm asking to do if it's according with your will. And there are certain prayers that if you do that, and we'll look at one tonight, I think we'll get there, you, you, you pull the legs out from underneath everything you've just prayed. You've just reversed everything you've just prayed. So it's kind of important to know which prayer we're praying because if I end it by, if it be your will, and that's undercutting my prayer so that God doesn't, can't hear it, then I need to know that because I shouldn't do that. But then here's Jesus praying basically, your will be done. Well, that's because this is a different type of prayer. This is called a prayer of consecration. And what that means is you're taking your will about a situation and you're submitting what you want to what God wants. And here's that perfect example because here's Jesus in the garden knowing what he's about to face, knowing the terrible beating he's about to go through, knowing the humiliation he's going to go through, knowing that he's going to be nailed to a cross, ridiculed, and I've read some commentaries, and I tend to believe that, that that isn't what he was asking to be relieved from, because he knew that was all along. And it may be, because it's interesting, because it says in Hebrews that he cried unto God with great tears, even as it were great drops of blood, and it says he was heard because of his piety or his righteousness. I used to wonder about that. Well, wait a minute. If he's asking for this cup to pass from him, and Hebrews says he's heard because of his piety, but he still had to go to the cross. He still had to be buried. He still had to go to hell. He still had to be raised from the dead. So the cup didn't pass from him. So that can't be the cup he's talking about. I believe the cup he's talking about is what he's going to go through by being separated from his father's presence. And he's looking for reassurance that when it's over with, it's going to be reestablished. See, you and I struggle to get a sense of God's presence. Jesus walked in uninterrupted, complete, open fellowship with God's presence. And the idea of being separated from that and having to trust himself to God to reestablish that with him, I suspect is what he's talking about. But I'm not going to argue with anybody over it. It's not worth it. The point is this. Jesus is telling Father, I really would rather not have to do that, but I'm going to settle this now. It's not what I want. It's your will be done. It's your will be done. So the purpose of this prayer was to take his own will and submit it unto the will of the Father. And there are times, probably many more than we actually exercise, when we need to do the same thing. Whether it's about a particular issue in your life, something that you just feel that you're holding on to and you just need to get on your knees sometime and just surrender it before God. Jesus had to do this three times before it was settled in him. Of course, you're never going to face what he was facing. Because he was obedient, we don't have to. But there may be things in us, we may be on our knees and go through a bloody battle. I don't want to let go of this. I don't want to surrender to this. But we go through that process, that prayer of emptying things out and of consecrating ourselves. And I just do that periodically whether I sense something or not. Go with me. There's another aspect of this. Go over to... to, um, to um, uh, Matthew chapter 6. It's important to know this distinction because so often people you hear, we don't hear so much here because we know better, but so often you hear people saying, well, Lord, this is what I need you to do if it be your will. Well, here it is clear. It's appropriate to say, Father, if this is your will. Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples have asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, and Jesus is doing this. Verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here again, Jesus is teaching his disciples as part of their prayer, as part of the preparation in their prayer. There's a pattern here that's very good to go through. It starts out with the wonderful beginning, our Father. So we know we have a basis for coming before God. Who is in heaven, it reminds us that he's not just dad, daddy-o, cool guy. He's God. Hallowed, this is worship, is your name. And then it's a surrender of your will to him. Your kingdom come. This life is not about my kingdom. This life is not about doing what I want done, having my agenda accomplished, my dreams done. God may honor your dreams, he may not, but he will only do it if you surrender them to him. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. Once that's been established in our prayer, now I can begin to ask him for my needs. Give us today our daily bread. Notice he doesn't say, if it's your will. Notice, because now he's asking for something that he needs, which is a different type of prayer. Notice he doesn't add on there, if it be your will. The only place he talks about the will of God when it comes to consecrating his will, consecrating our will to the will of the Father. So there's the prayer of consecration, which is a surrender of my will to his will. Then there's another prayer. Go over with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. This may sound on the surface as if it's the same thing. In a a way it is. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 6. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. This is called the prayer of commitment. Now that sounds like consecration, but the word commitment means to here to roll over. And actually the word casting over here talks about just rolling it over on him. In Matthew, uh, in Matthew 13, and there, it's in the other Gospels too, very important teaching where Jesus teaches the parable of the sower. In fact, what's so important about it is he goes near the end and says, if you can understand this parable, you can understand all the rest, implying that if you don't understand this, you're going to miss the rest of them. And it's the process by which God causes us to grow and produce fruit in our lives. And it's the process of taking the Word of God as a seed and sowing it in our hearts. And the parable is, results in some seed that just never germinated. It was, come, it, came, it, was, it was devoured immediately by the birds of prey. Others took some root, but they didn't, and the roots spread out wide, but they didn't spread out deep. So as soon as the hot sun of the day came up, it, they, because they did not have any depths of their roots down into the moisture, they burned up and they dried up. And the third, if you recall, it, it was planted on soil where there was some depth and the roots went down so that it found nutrients and it found water, but there were, the, 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 soil, had never been, the soil had never been plowed properly. The rocks and the, the, the other things that were down in that soil, the, 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 the other seeds that were in there had never been taken out of that. So as the plant began to grow, there were other things growing in there also, weeds and tares and things growing in there, which were competing for the nutrients and competing for the water with the roots of the seed that God had planted in there. And then Jesus goes on to explain, then there's the good seed that was planted in the good ground. Jesus goes on, and and the difference is, same seed, same potential, but different fruit. Some was no fruit. Some that was, it grew, but it didn't produce any fruit. Other produced fruit that was weakened because the plant was choked off. And then only the last seed produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And Jesus basically says, there's no difference in the seed. It's all the word of God sown. The difference in the fruit is the condition of the soil that the seed is sown in. And then he makes clear the soil represents the condition of our heart. So the process he's teaching us is God produces fruit in our life 
by sowing into our heart the Word of God, which has the potential in every one of us of producing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's maturing in us, the fruit of the power of God, the fruit of whatever God wants. It has that potential in every one of us. But for some of us sitting here tonight, it never gets in because we're distracted by other things and the birds of prey. Satan comes in and steals it before it ever gets into you. Some of it gets in, we hear it, we take notes, but we have no intention of doing it. So we get out there under pressure and it doesn't even come back to us because it wasn't sown in that depth of our heart that we expected to draw it back out with. And the one I want to get to is it's sown down into us. We have every intention of doing it. And we leave here tonight charged up and ready to go or whatever it is God's Word in us has begun to create vision for. And we go out there and we go get up tomorrow morning and all the pressures of life begin to pull in on us and pressure in us. And they begin to distract us. We know the words in there. We know what we ought to do. But we don't ever get that word so deep in us and so strong in us because other things in there are competing in our hearts. And so Peter, dealing with that issue, says, here's what God's told us to do. He's told us to take those cares and to commit them into the Lord's hands, to cast them upon Him. That doesn't mean take them one at a time and like that. That means take the bucket, take the whole thing and dump it over. The image in the original language is the symbolism in the English language original language is the, 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 um, the saddle or the whole um, structure that they would put on the back of a camel. It wasn't just the person that would ride on it. They would carry their goods. They would carry their household things, their tents in a caravan on the back of a camel. And when, a cam- when, the cam- when we come to the end to pitch their camp, they had to get this weight, this burden off of the camel's back. So what the camel would do is there was, however, they, they hit his, touched his leg or something, like that. he would kneel down like this. It's hard to be a camel. And as he did that, they would roll it off of his back onto the ground, and then they could begin to use it. And that's the image there, is we're to take the weight of the cares of our life, the fears and the pressures of life, and we're to not roll them on the ground because we can't do that because who's going to take care of them because they're in many cases legitimate concerns, but we're to roll them over on the Lord. Amen. Why? Because he says, because he cares Amen. for you. Literally in the Greek it says, it matters to him concerning you. Amen. We're to roll them over on him because he cares more for you than you do for about those situations. You're praying about lost loved ones or backslidden children or grandchildren and you care so much about them, you've got to realize he cares more about them than you do. So when you roll that care over on him, you're putting that in his hands, in the hands of somebody who cares about what happens to them more than you do. So we can trust him with those cares. If we were to go on and read in Matthew 6, we'll see that Jesus begins to this discussion about the condition of our heart and what we're pursuing. And he says, he says over there, he says, he talks about the strange things, and you've heard me teach about this before. He says, he says, if the if the eye if the light if the eye, the light that's in you is darkness if the eye is diseased he says then the light that's in you is darkness i used to wonder how can light in me be darkness until i began to study that and meditate on it what he's saying there is if your eye is diseased like with cataracts or you have astigmatism then light's getting in your eye but you can't rely on it. You can't trust it because the waves, light waves are being, are being distorted so that you can't trust what you're seeing. And then he goes on and talks about what your heart's pursuing. What's that got to do with it? Because what he's saying there is what your eye is to your body, your heart is to your soul and your spirit. Your eye determines what light, what truth, what, what 
what gets in your physical body to discern where to go, you know, where to stop, when to stop that car, when, you know, when to turn right, how to walk in here tonight. It's all because your eyes are picking up truth about what's there. And, the way, and so all of your body's responding to, to the, tr- the light that's coming in through your eyes as to where you can go, where you can't go, what you can pick up, what food you can eat, all the things that affect your life, all that information, most of that comes in through your eyes. So it's, and you know why important that is. You're driving down 195 and all of a sudden some speck gets in your eye, your eye starts watering, you don't go faster, do you? Hopefully, if you can't get that out, you're going to pull over because while your eyes are watering up, you can't see where you're going. And then Jesus talks about our heart. He says in verse 19, you cannot pursue, you cannot seek after God and mammon, which is the things of this world. You can't, doesn't say you can't have it, you can't seek after it. He's all talking there about what your heart's going after. Not what you have, what your heart's after. And we're fine down to that point. But then starting in verse 20, he starts talking about not worrying. Oh, now you're messing with us. Take no thought of tomorrow. Why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? He says, look at the birds of the the field. They don't worry about what they're going to eat. And yet my father feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And, and Solomon was not closed and all his glory was not closed with the beauty. Especially this time of year, it's good to preach them. Now look at the beautiful flowers, the beautiful azaleas that are out and the wisteria and all the things that they might be passed by now. But you know, the beautiful azalea and the rhododendrons are going to be, oh, it's so wonderful. Time to be in New England. The beautiful colors. One of my questions for God when I get to heaven is, why can't they bloom all year up here? But anyway, that's... Thy will be done, Lord. <laughs> I'll consecrate that one to Him. And, 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 you know, He's saying, look, just look at nature. Look how God takes care of them. Don't you think He cares more about you? Therefore, take no thought. Why is He saying that? Because when we allow those cares, those worries in our heart, we're giving to them a place in our heart that belongs to Him and it's like something getting in your eye and it distorts everything you see spiritually. It distorts even your prayers because it begins to affect the motives with which we do things. And one of the things we're going to learn is motive is everything when it comes to prayer. Motive is critical. Why? Because it says in in Proverbs 16, guard your heart with all diligence. Think about that. With all diligence. It's not watch over it because it's important. Guard over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because Out of your heart flow the issues of life, one of which is your prayers, your communion with God. So this is not just an option that we have. Well, it's nice to I could get rid of my prayer, my burdens. We have to do that or they're going to choke off our heart. And there's some of you that God has inspired you to do certain things. He's put things in you to do, but because of fear you don't venture out in them. And what happens is what fear does is it begins to shrink your whole perspective on things. Ever notice when you get afraid, your mind doesn't function the same way? It just gets narrows right on down. And, and, and your creativity gets narrowed down. And your, your, your vision gets narrowed down. Your spiritual vision gets narrowed down. That's why Satan uses fear as a weapon against the church. And the basis of all fear is you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it. You're not going to have enough to eat. You're not going to have enough to wear. You're not going to have what you're going to need. So you better hold on to it. You better do this. You better do that. And we place those cares into a place in our heart. And so one of the critical types of prayer is to come to God periodically. And especially if you feel that anxiety 
and just roll the cares over on him. Just Sometimes you may just need to take a pail or a bucket or some kind of container and just go over there and take them out. Pretend and just deposit them. Write them out. Write them out on a slip of paper. And then take those over there and just put them in there and then walk away. That's the problem. See, a lot of us have, have given them to the Lord, but the strings attached. Remember, remember those, those uh, uh, there, there's certain the, the, the trick things you can get a trick story, you know, where you can put a you know, dollar bill out there and around the corner and somebody goes to reach for it and you pull on it. That's what many of us do with our cares when we turn them over to the Lord. We don't really commit them to Him. That's not committing. That's letting Him see them for a while, letting Him hold them for a while, but we still have the control on it to pull it back. Here's the question to ask yourself. How well are you handling them? All the things you're worried about, how well are you doing with it? How well is that working? Is it working for you? Is it turning those situations around? Well, it won't because what you've got to understand is worry is exercising your faith that God gave you to, for Satan to fulfill his will in your life. Because what worry is, is believing that what Satan tells you is going to happen is going to come true. And isn't, say, isn't faith the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Most of the things we worry about are things that haven't happened yet. So they're things that aren't seen. But when we worry about them, we give substance to them. They become tangible to us. We start reacting even physically on the basis of something we haven't seen. Like That's operating in faith on the enemy's lies. Now listen to me carefully because faith is a spiritual force and when we worry, we're empowering the enemy to do the very thing we don't want happening. So he'll try to sell you the lie. Well, it's, it's human to worry. It's only natural to worry. But we're not human. We're not mere men. The Bible says, don't you know you're not mere men? We're sons of the living God. We're daughters of the living God, filled with the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, taking up the whole armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Satan does not want you to discover the power of God's Word, the power of God's might in your life. He wants you to give Him. Here's what He's got to do. When you came to Christ, you transferred kingdoms. That means you're not under his power. You're not under his domain. You're not under his authority. So he can't make anything happen in your life unless he can convince you to authorize him to work in your life. The very authority God gave the church to make his enemy his footstool Satan has conned us into putting into his hands to hurt the church. And then we worship him for it. Do you know what the devil's doing in my life? Do you have any idea what's going on in my life? That's praising him. That's honoring what he can do. Wow. We don't do it intentionally. But it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or not. It still works. (laughs) The prayer of commitment. Another prayer is just a prayer of worship. And that's, I know, I've been teaching you on, we've been learning on Sundays that worship isn't just singing. That's part of worship. But you can just worship God in your car just by telling Him I love you. I do that all the time. Lord, I love you. I just love you. I love you today. I love you for what you've done, but I just love you for who you are. That's worship. And that's a prayer. I'm talking to God, and in the process of that, I'm, I'm worshiping Him. Now, we said earlier, it's important to know the rules, and we're not going to get into all the rules, because we're going to get into the rules of the one prayer that, that is important for what we're doing. But the prayer of of consecration requires you to submit your will to God. That's the prayer of commitment does too. 
It's just, you know, Lord, this is yours. I'm abandoning this, and I'm never going to pick it up again. So we're not going to talk about this again, God, because it's now yours. So there's a finality to that, all right? So that if I, keep, if I keep doing it over and over and over again, then I haven't committed it yet. Now, sometimes we've got to keep sneaking up on the same thing to do it, but you need to understand you haven't done it yet. So once you've committed it to him, you can't go pick it up again because now you've taken it back out of his hands. And there are a lot of us, the reason God can't do what he wants to do, what you've asked him to do, is you haven't given it to him yet. You haven't given it to him yet. You haven't given it to him yet. Then he come up here. I want to do what we've done before. Remember? Well, you'll know when I get there. Can you do this? Yeah, because I won't fall on you. Stand over here. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs 3, 4, and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, to your own way of figuring it out. And so what we do is we, we, we trust in the Lord and lean not to our own understanding. See, He's the Lord. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to, to trust everything into His hands, but what we do is we lean towards the Lord. But see, while I'm leaning towards Him, my center of gravity is still under my feet. So I'm leaning towards Him. I'm committing my concerns to Him, but I still got control. So I don't understand that. I think, well, Lord, I've given everything to You, but the way I know I've given everything to You is because I'm now not holding it anymore. I'm not, I'm resting in Him. Thank you, brother. I'm resting in Him. And when you rest, you stop striving. When you rest, you stop striving. So if I don't understand that, what I'm going to do is, because one of the principles of this type of prayer is once I've given it to Him, we don't talk about it anymore. In terms of, you know, how's it going? I don't even consider it anymore because I'm not, I don't want to let the care of it back in my heart. Prayer of worship, the only rule is it's your heart's open to Him, just to love Him and just to worship Him. Well, we'll stop here. There are several more, and then we're going to get into the prayer, which this is really all about, which is the prayer of intercession, which operates under very different principles than some of the other prayers. But the problem is if we don't understand the difference, we're going to take principles of the prayer of faith, we're going to take principles of the prayer of commitment, of the prayer of consecration, and just apply them indiscriminately and not understand why some things aren't working. And again, the clearest example is that prayer of consecration is surrendering to your will be done according to your will. But the prayer of faith, if you use that as the basis of the prayer of faith or the prayer of consecration, you've just cut your legs right out from underneath your prayer. So it's important to know what type of prayer that we're engaged in, and that's based on the purpose for the prayer. And then we can begin to understand the principles and the rules by which we're doing this.